on average, you got 12 to 15 seconds between pitches, right? So average major league game is about two hours and 55 minutes. There's about 75 minutes of in-between pitch time. There's about 13 to 15 minutes of action, total action during a given night. So the, really the game is played in those 75 minutes or the 15 seconds between pitches. What are we thinking between those pitches and are we training that? Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I'm Jonathan Gilner, and thank you so much for being here. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. This week, I got the pleasure of interviewing Dave Turgeon, Coordinator of Instruction for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Dave has enjoyed a career in baseball that includes 13 years of professional playing experience that has spanned the globe, combined with decades of managing and coaching experience in various professional and collegiate levels. Dave was drafted out of Davidson College in North Carolina in 1987 by the New York Yankees and went on to play 13 seasons of professional baseball. As a coach, Turgeon has managed and coached at the professional level as well as coached at the collegiate level, and his first stop was with the Cleveland Indians in 1999, after which he spent time in various college coaching roles with Boston College, UConn, Duke, and Virginia Tech. His passion for working with professional players steered his career to the Pittsburgh Pirates in 2010. Our discussion today covered training and transfer, some different techniques that Dave learned while playing in different countries, what he means with his training the 15 seconds concept, and we discussed the debate between block training and random training. This episode is so good, and here is Dave Turgeon. Dave, welcome to the show. Great to be here, John. Absolutely. Well, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. You know, we've been trying to set a date around your busy, busy schedule. And in the meantime, I've been doing some research and you talk so much about motor learning and skill acquisition and transfer and training. And so that's, that is just music to my ears. And, you know, for our listeners who would like to get a little bit of background about who you are. And again, whenever I was doing some research about you, you have an array of different baseball experiences. So I would love to hear, you know, how you got started in the game of baseball and then some different things from the different backgrounds that you have from all of the different places that you've been. So, um, I have, uh, I come from a baseball, uh, family, a very athletic family in general, um, grew up in the Northeast. So obviously being, uh, from the Northeast, uh, we, we played all the sports, uh, basketball, baseball, football, soccer, uh, whatever was in season at that time. And so there was a, uh, a very, a very, uh, wide range of, of stuff going on competition, but in my, my particular family growing up last seven kids of the, of the five, uh, boys in the family, three ended up playing professionally. So being at the, at the trail end of that, it's a huge advantage, uh, to not just only learning, but being inspired and encouraged, um, to, to 
do whatever it is that I want to do. And I, my, my oldest brother, uh, Mike, uh, was a uh, division three baseball player from Eastern Connecticut state university. Uh, and he ended up going in the sixth round, I think back in 1977, uh, went on, played for a long time, had a great career. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I always look back on it too. And, and, um, and say that he was my Roger Bannister for, for a variety of reasons, you know, um, you know, he, he was, he broke through and did the, all the firsts in our family. Um, you know, he was a great student athlete, high school and college. And then, um, you know, he was, he graduated from college, he played pro ball. And so if you think back, you know, right. I always bring up the name Roger Bannister He's the first sub four minute mile. Mm -hmm. And you think about it, uh, you know, why they, they came to this conclusion that it, it, this cannot be done. It's not possible that a human can run a sub four. Well, he goes out and does it. And within like two years and three years, you got three, five, seven, 11, 12. And uh, obviously he broke through uh, and gave permission for the others to follow. And my brother, Mike, there was never any doubt in my mind that I would go to, you know, advance my education. I would play pro ball. And then you know, from there, it's kind of, you know, evolved and expanded, but I'm very grateful for being, uh, the last in that position of seven kids for a variety of reasons. But, um, I owe a ton to my brother, Mike, and he was a, a great role model for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and to this day, he still is a sounding board for me and a guy I tap into all the time. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, it was kind of a natural evolution. I mean, it was probably bat belay about 50 different teams by the age of five, six, seven. That's awesome. So, and you know, a lot of observational reps there. I remember making plays in little league uh, and I didn't, couldn't really explain why I made them. Um, probably cause I had seen them made, you know, many, many times. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my dad obviously was a good baseball guy as well. And, and grew up idolizing Ted Williams and, and all of the the Red Sox club clubs of the fifties and sixties and forties, even. So the background is there, how, how I evolved into some different experiences. Well, I, you know, I obviously from college and I went to a Davidson college at a George Greer was my, my college coach and Mm -hmm. still is a, uh, a, a close mentor and friend for me. Coach Greer is now a hitting coordinator. He, uh, with the Cardinals. But, uh, so, uh, I grew a ton in college and got an opportunity to play pro ball and grew up in the Yankee organization professionally. I'm extremely grateful for that opportunity. I was around some, some quality, quality baseball men, uh, and humans, uh, that impacted me. Um, many of whom I still keep in touch with to this day. And it led to me uh, as I moved on, I went over to Europe and it's an interesting thing is that I, I, you know, I played infield for five years, uh, up to the double a level. Uh, and, uh, then I was, then I transferred and ended up on the mound and I pitched for eight and ended up making it to the triple a level as a pitcher. So my, my background is a very interesting one. Um, I ended up playing 13 years after college and the international thing uh, came as a result of, you know, I, I'm just not ready to go back to school yet and get my master's and probably do the coaching thing. Uh, so I ended up going over there and it led to some interesting opportunities. And my second year in Europe, I was, uh, 
I was pitching uh, in some European championship in Holland and uh, had some Taiwanese scouts come up to me and invite me over for a tryout that winter. I ended up pitching in Taiwan oh, nice. for four and a half years, bounced back to play in Mexico mm-hmm. for three and uh, ended up in, with the Orioles and Sid Thrift signed me and back in 98 after my Mexico season and uh, ended up in AAA with the Orioles. So it's, it's been a fantastic you know, ride and a ton of different experiences. And I think that just alone, the game obviously shapes your lens, but uh, sure. really, so does so does traveling. Um, traveling and playing in different cultures really helps shape your lens, and you realize there's a whole big world out there, and there's lots of different ways to do things, mm-hmm. uh, not just uh, not just our way. So, I'm very very grateful for that. And then along the way, the you know my the Asian influence on my my game, my training, my teaching is still there. Uh, I had a Japanese pitching coach for, for four and a half years and, you know, who, uh, was a very interesting teacher, uh, who never talked about mechanics. He taught balance, dynamic balance and movement mm-hmm. and allowed deliveries to find our own deliveries to find us. And, you know, he believed that body control directly correlated to, you know, ball control in the zone. And he was very good, uh, at teaching a lot of those things. So very grateful for that experience. Uh, it has shaped me uh, and it continues to, um, as I, I've done, continue to do some international stuff on the coaching side. So in a nutshell, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a crazy ride. It's been a fun ride and, you know, continues to evolve. Sure. I, I love that. And uh, again, it's, I know the listeners know that I love to travel as well. And, uh, I would love to do more on the baseball side just because I, I obviously I'd love to learn about, uh, what different people are doing from different areas of the country and, and really the world. And you mentioned about your pitching coach and with his Japanese influence, but I want to know, are there any, are there any other things that come to mind whenever you look back and you go, yeah, the guys in Mexico did it this way. And this is, I really liked it. Or maybe I, I, you know, I thought that this was really interesting because again, we all have a very small lens of what we grew up in and in even different parts of the country, we do it a little bit differently. But is there anything that comes to mind whenever you think about back to your experiences and go, yeah, I picked up this from this person and this from this person, because I think that's all really, really interesting. Yeah, I do. And frequently the, the, the exercise of writing of these articles for, for USA Baseball has kind of forced me into you know, thinking back at things and really, uh, reflecting on them, mm-hmm. uh, either influences impact, uh, as a man, as a player, as a teacher, you know, and the one, you know, there's, there's been so many that jumped on me. Obviously I mentioned my brother already, my dad, my, my family, uh, my, my college coach and, and looking back on how he taught, I, in the, in not only just the, the connective ability of, 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 the, of these coaches I'm talking about, like coach Greer, or holy son, my, my Japanese pitch coach, the first thing they had the ability to do was connect really well with us, uh, with our, with our head, with our heart. And before ever, you know, hopping in there to, to try and just quote unquote coach. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the build of trust, uh, and then to take you to places either, sometimes you're not even knowing them, knowing where, you, you know, that, you, you know, you've been coached. Ultimately that's a master coach, sure. uh, where, you know, they're working on some, some approach stuff, uh, head heart stuff. And all of a sudden it translates into performing, but those guys, 
were uh, very ahead of their time in a couple of different ways. Coach Greer with very little talk and mostly when he used cues, they were external. It was a lot of uh, rhythm and timing approach stuff and belief and getting you in the right frame of mind and uh, obviously focusing on the right part of the field as a hitter. And he really, he really was very good at not only connecting and, and, and teaching, but helping you find out who you even are as a player. Uh, because self ID, as you know, is, is a huge deal. You know, if you get a little leadoff hitter, that's a slap running bunt guy who thinks he's going to hit, you know, 15 home runs and hook him around the pole all year. That's probably not a good place to be. So I think self ID and helping kids find out who they are as people and players, uh, you know, he was, at, he was amazing at, and uh, fast forwarding to my, uh, Asian experience, I, you know, Holy son was a guy that, uh, in his, in, in, you know, he, I spoke like no Japanese at all. Mm-hmm. And he spoke very little English and it was amazing the, how through the art of show a little bit of tell and mostly do is amazing equation for <laughs> acquiring skills to help you perform better. Sure. And, you know, the use of video was the first time I had dove into video when I was back in, in 1993. Um, that was the first time. And, and, you know, Holy son, you know, helped me tap into the preparation piece of what, this is what you're about to face. And the, uh, and that this is one thing that stays with me to this day is he, he didn't believe in, you know, pitching to uh, the weaknesses of hitters as much as staying with your strengths as a pitcher. Okay. You know, if that aligned up with shoving it into, you know, their weaknesses, great, but he never believed to deviate from your strengths as a pitcher to get guys out. And, and I, and I've seen that play over and over again. I use it as a pitching coach, um, you know, because your, your best pitches thrown with conviction have a really good chance of having success. So, he was a really strong influence on my training as well. Um, the mindset, um, the use of training balance as opposed to mechanics um, was very, very impactful. You know, my, you know, my experience in, uh, in then changing, you know, cultures, obviously, you know, wherever you're at, it's a different brand. It's the game, the game is the game, but it's a different brand of it. Mm-hmm. You know, so the approach, the training may be, a, you know, a little bit different. The, the game may be a little bit different. Obviously, you're in a different, you know, country. Uh, there's lots of differences there. But, you know, I found that if you, you know, if you want to get wherever you're playing, you have to learn how to assimilate into that culture to to win at that game, not at the one, you know, that you play. You got to figure out how, how are they trying to beat me? And that is, that's a very interesting thing. And it makes you very adaptable and uh, good at problem solving and, 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 and on the, uh, uh, even doing that on the fly. So, and when I moved back and played some time in, in Mexico, you see is another different style. It's another different culture. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's one of those, you know, baseball cultures where you think, okay, they're not all tooled up down here. Maybe some guys are on their uh, way up or way down over here. But uh, one of the things they do down there is they know how to play and they have a plan mm-hmm. to beat you. Uh, and it's a, it's a definite game of chess, which is very similar to the game over here in the United States, minus the, you know, the big power guy on the mound, minus 
the big power guy in the box. And then you take that and you come back to the States and you think, you know, this game offers up a lot of different cultures all at the same time. But one of the things that it had at the highest level here, one of the things that's, that is exciting is the power and the speed, both on the mound and and then box and on the bases where, uh, those are just different ways to, you know, to beat you. And it's obviously it's a very exciting thing too. So, going around the different experiences and, and the different impacts of, of coaches and mentors I've had, it's been, it's been pretty unique. And I'm, you know, as, as I look back on it, um, I still tap into a lot of those experiences and teachers and mentors that I had at those spots. Absolutely. And you talked about being adaptable and being a problem solver, which are two huge areas of need for baseball players in general, and, and especially really good ones. So let's go ahead and, and jump right in. And, you know, you talk a lot about training and transfer and getting things to transfer to the game while in training. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whenever mm-hmm. I mention that, what are some things that come to mind? And, you know, you, you see a lot of different experiences from a lot of different levels. You work with amateur level with Team USA now. And so first explain what you mean by training and transfer, and then let's get into some different things to help our practices get better with that. So, uh, just the training and transfer is a, it's a really, really broad topic. Um, and just to kind of distill it down, you know, we, you talk about the concept of motor learning and, and, and I've just kind of dove into that in the last three or four years. And, um, I have some great resources over here with, with the pirates, you know, Bernie holiday and Andy Bass, a couple guys that I tap into on a regular basis on, on these topics and concepts. But, um, the idea of motor learning and how we acquire skills is, is something that's, I think, critical to all teachers and, and coaches. Um, and then the ability to acquire those skills uh, and then have them transfer and allow those skills to actually come out during the fire of competition is a great puzzle to solve. And, you know, it's a it's a never ending um, it's a never ending puzzle. Because not only obviously you're you're working with different groups, but each individual is entirely different and uh, entirely different puzzle to solve. And how am I going to help this guy? And how am I going to help him acquire the skills needed? And how am I going to help put him in an environment where once he goes into the competitive environment, he feels like he's been there before, you know, and allows the uh, the retention of skills and the the ability to transfer them out, let them fly during the skill of competition. So. It is a, it's a broad topic. Um, it's a, uh, it's a passion at mine. And I, and I really believe that training and transfer really is at the foundation, you know, of what we're trying to do, which is win a world championship here in Pittsburgh. So, you know, if we're not doing the right things as coaches that are driving that car, which is the player, mm-hmm. um, then that car is not going to cross the finish line in first place. All right. So the, where we create margins is, um, you know, if we're going to holistically develop our players, uh, which is head, heart, mind, you know, and skill and all those things that we talk about, uh, the training component to bring everything together is a huge piece of that. And I, I look at that as, you know, obviously part of that, you know, that foundation of the player, uh, at the bottom of a triangle, you know, the training composition is, is hugely important to go ahead with the, you know, the, the man and mind development. Um, obviously, uh, Bobby scales, our field coordinator has a, has an expression. And he said, look, the, the player resides in the man. And 
And if you understand that concept, you understand that um, in the firing order of, of teaching, it is very important to understand that the man development of the man is hugely important that, you know, when we go out and do our training, then things will transfer better with a mature, you know, well-rounded individual. So I think, you know, we, as we kind of, you know, move on in this, in this conversation, uh, to sum it up in a nutshell, you know, training and transfer is basically how we prepare our guys to perform. And, um, it is not about feeling good as it is about performing because acquiring skills is not a feel good exercise. It is a, it's hard. Uh, you're it's, it's slow, messy, and, uh, it, it takes a while to, to acquire, learn skills. And when they, when you get them, you have to continue to deepen the learning with those things in order for them to perform with consistency. So, you know, I don't know if I, um, uh, answer that or made it more confusing, but I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to simplify a, a huge wide ranging topic. Sure. Absolutely. And uh, again, it's, I ask a broad question just, just to kind of see where you go with it. And I, I love that now hopefully our listeners can understand where we're coming from as far as training and transfer. And so whenever we're talking about baseball, we're talking about a game that's been played for, you know, over a hundred years and there's a lot of tradition that comes with that. And so a couple of years ago, I started digging into the same topic of what actually transfers and what doesn't. And there's, Mm -hmm. it was, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that we do because that's the way we've always done it. And so I started to really so I wrote on that on a whiteboard, if we could do it different today, or if we could start baseball over today, what would we do different? And there were a lot of different things that came up and have started to gain traction, like uh, batting practice and things like that. But what are some different things that you have come to and, and you've tested and you've, uh, you've experimented with that you've always done it this way, but maybe you don't want to do it this way before, or maybe you just, you just, uh, changed it around a little bit and made it in a way that actually takes some some thought to be able to beat the drill or anything like that. But what comes to mind whenever whenever you hear these things of, okay, baseball is a traditional sport, what can we take that really does transfer and either make it better? Or what can we take that, you know, like a, a something like BP and how can we, uh, how can we change it in a way that actually makes sense and what's going to help them in a game? So you you hit you're hitting the concept what we call uh, tr- uh, truth over tradition. Okay. You know we're constantly seeking the truth here in terms of how we do things, and if it's if it's if it, it aligns with what, what you know baseball has done traditionally for a hundred plus years, awesome. If not, we need to improve or change it. Um, so if your if your approach to coaching your players is that way and throwing stuff on the board like that and looking at it. Um, I think that is an excellent starting point. And then as you deepen your learning about how we learn and acquire skills, I think you're going to find a lot of different things are going to work for you. So a couple of examples, you know, Mm -hmm. just in how you want to, it's very, I think, I think offense is probably the easiest to talk about when you talk about truth over tradition. It's funny, uh, training to the truth is a concept, you know, I believe in, um, meaning can we replicate the speed and the environment of our game with the decision-making problems that go along with it in our training, right? So 
if you know, how can we train closer to the truth in a lot of different areas? And offense, obviously, is something that is is most obvious because uh, when you look at a lot of different practices going on around the country, you see uh, offensively they train in a crawl walk manner, but at the game time at seven o'clock they have to sprint, and you're like. Okay, I felt really good VP today, but what happened? I mean, you know, I just, I guess, uh, so when we look at that and, and, and go backwards, we've completely revamped on how we do things. Now, it's interesting. I, I saw recently on Twitter, there's this, I, I don't know what the Twitter handle on this, but I, I just, it was, a, and I ended up finding this video on YouTube of uh, batting practice of Ruth and Derek. And mm-hmm. so when you watch this uh, BP and it's about a five or six minute video, you'll see focus and intent on every single rep. It is this, these are game reps. So it is, it's also, uh, you know, there was a catcher involved, uh, just watching their takes foul balls and the things that were going on during their batting practice. It's obvious they were training completely the truth. There was a guy on the mound throwing and, and working and moving the ball around on them. Um, as opposed to L screen, 45 feet, 45 mile an hour cookies down the middle where you're, it's taking swing practice as opposed to hitting practice and making decisions on pitches as opposed, you know, to feeling good. So anyway, the, so the, 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 the offensive side of things, there are a, there's limitless ways to, you know, we're, we're taking the traditional BP and blowing it up and actually going backwards in time, getting closer to the truth and then adding things actually to make it even more competitive mm-hmm. uh, or challenging or, uh, you know, uh, uh, incorporating a lot of different things into that, you know, the bunt game, the uh, mix of pitches and all of these things, angle, left, right, spin, all of it. So that area where, and, and we're going to, we can get into more of this later I, uh, about some creative ways, how to do that. That offensive area is, you know, the, the simple concept of what's my job. I got to get a pitch I can handle to do it with. And then I have to make a good decision on that. Mm-hmm. Typical training of L screen coach throwing uh, cookies doesn't train that whole process, which is mind and body. And, you know, what's my job? I got to get a pitch to do it with, and I got to make a good decision and barrel it up. And that's a lot. That's a, that's a major problem to solve. And when you watch baseball and you see the game, how fast it changes and how fast a hitter's role can change in a matter of one pass ball where the runner goes from first to second. And all of a sudden he's got a different role now with nobody out and the runner on second and this guy on the mound. What's he trying to do to me? What am I trying to do? What's my role? Got to get a pitch to do with, and I got to barrel it up and execute. So that whole process uh, and speed of the game, we try to incorporate that into our, our training, our offensive training in a ton of different fun and competitive ways. Mm-hmm. And it's not hard. A lot of it is low hanging fruit. And I think that our guys, you know, and you, you said you had uh, Drew Saylor, one of our offensive guys on, Recently, he's he's got some great numbers to back up how we performed in, in a lot of different areas, and and we we point to our training as a major you know contributor to why we're performing so well. So that aside, I think truth over tradition always, mm-hmm. um, and that's just the offensive side of the ball. 
some of the things that we've done on the defensive side of the ball has has been super creative. Um, Use of strobe lights or strobe glasses. Mm -hmm. I use, I train with, you know, handballs, racquetballs, tennis balls to train, you know, hop reading and instinctuality on the defensive side of the ball, uh, quicker decision-making on the hop reading and, and all of those things we've got. Um, on the, on the, you know, on the pitching side, the use of constraints and competition and our, and pressure in our bullpens, uh, where, you know, you're requiring way more focus and intent to every pitch thrown, as opposed to just going through and throwing scripted pens. Uh, we've come up with some creative ideas to put guys, apply some pressure to create some higher focus and intent, more acquisition skill, more transfer. So and we can hit some of those later in our competition or our conversation uh, as we kind of break down the different areas. But if you look at your whole concept of how you're preparing your team traditionally on a whiteboard, just looking at it and you say, okay, this is what we've always done. Is this the best way? I think you're going to find that there is a lot to change. Let me give you small examples. Sure. Um, we, we throw the ball down at second base between innings. We've, we've now, we, we now alternate to back pick it first, throw out a, a stealer of third base. And then we throw through to second base. Sometimes we'll work a first and third cut off the second base where the footwork of the catch and tag is different, but as opposed to just mindlessly throwing the ball on a second base between every inning infield outfield, which is completely blocked training where you, everyone knows where the ball's going. You, it's a very controlled environment. It's a, it's, it's a mindless drill. We've gone to randomizing our infield outfield. Uh, so, you know, whereas, you know, the, the outfielder is told there's a different base to throw every time the infielder, there's a different play to make reverse order of your infield outfield. A lot of different things to cause more focus and intent on reps that we've always done traditionally, which it becomes a, uh, a walkthrough, which walkthroughs, um, in baseball, where there's so many variables in the jungle at game time, you know, walkthroughs, they have a tendency not to really work for us. So, and I've never, outside of walking through our bump plays and day on day one, our cuts and relays on day one to make sure of our lines and our just our plays outside of that walkthrough of they know the play. I've gone right into, um, you know, speed, you know, and variability. And, and decision making. So this this the the whole concept that you're you're hitting on is is huge, and I just think that's a, a very healthy way of evolving your training. Sure, and I, I think that you know, and you can tell me something different from the professional ranks, but I think that most of you know the what we talk about mental mistakes come from not 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 necessarily not knowing the content, like they know what to do, but it's just uh, understanding the connection with when that happens in a game. And so you hear a lot about, you know, five o'clock hitters and you, especially with, since I'm a teacher and, and a coach, you get to see this and we're trying to prepare players to be successful in a game, which the game is random. Right. And so whenever that yes. stuff doesn't transfer, so, some of the time it is the player, but also some of the time it is from our training. So say for instance, we've gone over the walkthrough bunt defense a thousand times this year, and then they mess it up in a game. Well, you know, was it the player? Could it be? 
or was it the coach who didn't randomize it enough to where they had had to make a split second decision on what to do based on the circumstances that they had. And that's something that's really hit me hard the last couple of years because everything that happens in a game for the most part is random and you can go through all these different situations in your head, but you know, whenever it comes down to it, are they in the right mindset or have they been trained to problem solve? And I think that if they don't, then that's something that we can look at our training and go, okay, so they failed the test in a game. How can we do better in training to be able to get them to pass this than the next time? And I think the hard part is, is sometimes it is physical, but a lot of the times it can be mental. And that's trying to discern the difference between the two is really tough as well. So how I've taken what your, your topic you're bringing up there is, I, I think immediately to the 15 seconds, okay? The 15 seconds, we call it training 15 seconds. On average, you got 12 to 15 seconds between pitches, right? So average major league game is about two hours and 55 minutes. Um, there's about 75 minutes of in between, in between pitch time. There's about 13 to 15 minutes of action, total action during a given night. So the, really the game is played in those 75 minutes or the 15 seconds between pitches. What are we thinking between those pitches and are we training that? Right. And the only way to truly train that is, is with the, you know, random type practices and the decision-making. Now I hit a little bit on that on the offensive side. Okay. So as opposed to throwing 45 mile an hour cookies, practicing yes, yes, yes all day mm-hmm. where the, the, the guy is actually having to make swing decisions in practice. That is a completely different ball game. Okay. Mm-hmm. So which in the game time, you know, on average, you probably say yes about half the time. When you look at traditional batting practice, it's 99.9 and guys are going to look, there's one ball in the turtle. Mm-hmm. That's a really good round of BP. No, it's not. So I want our guys to be really good decision makers that can impact the baseball and we need to train that. So, so talking about the 15 seconds applies on the mound and the box on defense. One of the ways that creative ways that we, we talk about, you know, blending a lot of different things, uh, is our, in our fundamentally or jungle work. I, I, I call it about the word fundamentally. I don't know if anyone's using that, but (laughs) we, we combine a lot of different fundamentals into one, uh, into one practice. And it could be a 20 minute block where you've got a defensive shell and an offensive shell. Uh, you've got a coach behind an ice screen, a pitcher on the mound, a complete shell of defense. And so off of that and, and a guy in the box. So if, if you're working on things, you can completely manipulate the situation you want to create. And so then an offensive and defensively, you have your players reacting to that. Now, the mm-hmm. thing that you're training is uh, the 15 seconds baseball is played between pitches so that when the ball is hit randomly, you've already run through all the scenarios in your head and you're going to make a really good decision afterwards. Okay. So preparation, anticipation, good decision, as opposed to action, reaction, just a panic decision. There was no preparation or anticipation of anything going on. We train decision-making and between pitch stuff, on a daily basis. Okay. So that, that is, that is a way better at creating some ret- skill retention and transfer at game time. And we try to incorporate that in a lot of different ways. You can, in, in one sitting you, with the offensive and defensive shell, you can, you can do it. Now you can say, well, I don't have enough for two shells. Okay. Well, let's, we can work on base running and defense at the same time. 
and complete. And we can do it fundamentally with base running and defense. How can you do it? Well, I got a machine at home. I've got a live shell at defense. I have a runner on second base. Let's see if we can work on five ways to advance the third base, freezing on line drives. All right, well, Lex, we're going to work on base runners at first and second, live shell at defense. I have a machine at home. Let's really focus and emphasize freezing on, react back on a line, uh, and then see how the defense reacts after the ball goes through. Where are they going with the ball? Are they keeping the double play in order? Uh, is the backside runner reacting and tagging properly? Uh, the coaching opportunities, the base running opportunities, the defensive, there's a limitless amount of opportunities to teach and learn in this setting. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's fun, it's fast paced. Uh, and I think the idea of being prepared and that brings in a whole element of preparation in your coaching. What, what do we want to get done today? All right. What are the, what are our focuses as teachers and where are we coaching up and then let's make it happen. And so you can manipulate that entire fundamentally and to include offense or base running on the offense. Obviously uh, you want to finish this thing off with a pop-up slide. You can talk about foot accuracy and sliding and staying on the bag because now the game's changed. You got to stay on the bag. It's uh, it's you gotta, you gotta finish tags, complete plays. That becomes another element of your training um, defensively, keeping the double play in order from the outfield perspective uh, defensively on the infield. Where am I going with this ball? You know, speed of the ball, speed of the runner. Everything that we do incorporates scoreboard, hitter, speed of game, speed of runner. And those are the problems that we have to solve on a daily basis. So while I'm on the topic, we can, we can talk about that fundamentally segment we just talked about versus a block training segment where, okay, today we're going to work on bunt plays and you, you roll the bunts. Uh, there's no batter runner. Uh, and, and they, and you roll the bunt and the third baseman fields the ball and throws the ball. And everyone says, Hey man, that's good play. Sure. Well, you know, guys have been playing this thing a long time. Know that that really is not the game. The game is all gray area and reading speed of the ball, speed of the runner. What's the score, how many outs, uh, and solving the problem once the ball is put in play. So you have to be able to factor in all these things. So block training, uh, and, and Randy, uh, Andy Bass, one of our, uh, uh, mental conditioning guys, he did, a, this is a great illustration of block training versus random training. He said, uh, problem reconstruction is a great way to explain random versus block. He goes, block training is if, you know, if I had you said, John, if I had you in the classroom and I said, John, look, uh, I'm going to flash math problems up on the board. And as I flash them, you say the answer out loud. And mm-hmm. seven times in a row, I, I, I write this, I 21 divided by seven. And you're like three, sure. three three, three, three. And so by the seventh thing, your brain is about shut off. And so then I go, okay, let's do the same thing with this next block of equations. And then I start going 21 divided by seven, Mm -hmm. 21 divided by three, 28 divided by three, 29 divided by whatever. I saw I'm throwing random, simple math equations. And and so every time I do this, I do it with staff and I do with players. You see, you see the, uh, the time between becomes a lot longer. Uh, because you actually have to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And so the difference between block training and random training, it's random training is, is just that it's, it's practicing movements versus practicing how to think and move at the same time. And, and, and our guys have gotten better and better and better at, at this thing. And, and so when, when you're training in a random fashion, some of the things you're, you expect to see, uh, is, uh, uh messiness. Right. 
It's going to be slower sometimes. Uh, there's going to be emotions ev- evoked, uh, frustration, uh, which now you can start uh, teaching and coaching how to handle emotions. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, and in your training, if your training doesn't evoke any emotion or frustration, it's probably not really good training. So this, this random versus block thing is, uh, it's a very simple concept. And I think that the, the pushback, uh, you get is either uh, a lot of coaches saying, you know, Hey, it's, it's just too fast. And my first response is, well, what makes you say that? Because, because they, they've they've made errors. It's sloppy. If that's the case, then we know some good stuff is going on. So if if the errors and the sloppiness is a result of lack of focus and intent, it's probably a bad drill. If it's a good drill and you see some sloppiness to it, allow it to clean up, allow them to learn it. And then once it gets, gets clean up, you know, they need more. And it's, and it's, um, I think that's the art of coaching is recognizing when they need more, when they need less. So, you know, obviously we want to, we want to stretch our players, but we we don't want to, we don't want to destroy their confidence. Um, so when I think when you talk about how messy do you allow it to be? And if you look at, if you look at, uh, you know, if you're working with an individual and, you know, his success rates, 90 to 90 to hundred percent, 95 to hundred percent, it's probably not very good training. Right. If you get in that little more, uh, happy zone of 70 to 85%, uh, where there's some messiness and some, uh, lack of success in there. Um, I think it's probably pretty good skill acquisition training going on. Sure. Um, but it's also based off, you know, having a feel for your guy and who's in front of you, what he needs and what he can handle. So, but that is a, that's a very, I'm very passionate about being able to blend, um, and have them make decisions on the field in real time and, and at real speed. Um, and I think the, the, you know, we hit the concept of training to the truth. You know, I've also talked, um, and used, uh, with our coaches and players is training beyond the truth. And I think if you've ever read, uh, talent code, I think there's a, there's a section in talent code by Daniel Coyle, where he talks about futsal and, and how, uh, Brazil got to go past the rest of the world in soccer. And they attribute some of that success to, uh, the game of futsal, which is a game of soccer on a shrunken down field where right. the speed of the game is much greater. And the, 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 the uh, their, their brains and bodies are forced to make much quicker decisions and have much more accurate uh, skill sets on, on a smaller field. So everything's done uh, faster, right. forcing their, their minds to develop at a quicker rate. And so I've taken that concept into a lot of different areas. I mean, from, from batting practice, you know, moving up the BP pitcher on the hitter to have way less reaction time up mm-hmm. to, 95 to 100 reaction time on a consistent basis, as opposed to 45 miles an hour. Uh, on the defensive side, we've we've actually shrunken down the diamond and gone bunt defense with 75 foot bases, uh, short mound, you know, and run a complete live shell of offensive defense off of a shrunken down diamond. Um, and I think some of the results of that work guys got better at controlling runners, uh, cause it, you know, everything was done quicker. Mm-hmm. Our bunts got more accurate and better angles and defensively they were making quicker decisions. Was it sloppy and messy at first? Oh my God. It was very, <laughs> but how it transferred into the game was great. We defend, uh, uh defended well against the bunt and we've also bunted well. So it, it's, it's, it's those simple concepts 
put into play can be not only fun, but frustrating and stuff for the players. But what you're doing is you're creating teaching opportunities now by having good training as well. Well, tell us a little bit about deliberate practice and what you mean by respect the rep, because I, I love these t-shirts and I'm going to have to get one at some point in time, but you, and I think this is your profile picture on Twitter as the respect the rep t-shirt. So tell us about that. Tell us about how that evolved and, and really what that means for you guys. About a year ago, uh, I was working with our extended coaches, uh, and we had we, every Wednesday the camp day. So we generally have competition Wednesdays or baseball Olympics where we, you know, where every single thing that done on the field is, is competitive and scored and all that. And so one of the simple competitions we had and Kyron Madison spearheaded this one, uh, was a defensive competition where we had every single infielder out at shortstop and a ball was fungo fungoed at them. Uh, where they had to field a ball and throw it accurately across the diamond into a net with an X uh, on it. And um, it was, a, and so it ends up evolving to, you can field the ball and only do one replace of your feet. And so uh, players were like, well, what if it's a bad hop? And you say, well, you know, uh, the game, the game doesn't care about bad hops. The hop, the bad hops are going to happen in the game. So it's a, it's a mental toughness drill. It's a competitive drill. It's a fun drill because guys start talking a little smack and then, you know, it gets a little intense, but the focus and intent on these simple reps of fielding your ground ball and throwing the accurate across the first base was, is fun to watch. So you watching these guys, we funnel it down to two players. Uh, and the two players went back and forth, probably 10 to 12 in a row where it was, you know, beautiful fielding, throwing accurately across the diamond. Well, on the last rep, one of the guys on a routine, he he just did it 12 times in a row, just threw the ball away where he just arm dropped. He, he, for some, for some reason he lost focus on the rep. So we bring it always, as always, we bring groups together generally at the end of either a fundamental or a session of skill work. And we unpack it with the player through questions. What do you guys see? What value did you see? Where do we do well? What do we need to move forward? Stuff, very simple questions. And the players, um, you know, with, with uh, answering those questions, usually unpack some really good stuff. Uh, in this particular case, uh, one, of the play, you know, one of the players responded when uh, Kyron Madison asked the group, Kyron's one of our managers, he asked the group, well, what happened on that, you know, on that last rep? And, and uh, you know, the player the player uh, said, geez, you know, it looked like he just lost focus hmm. on the rep. And, and Kyron responded, you know, it, it, from my perspective, it looked like he just didn't respect the rep. Wow. Okay. And, and so that thought crystallized in my head. And I, and I talked to Kyron after we broke up and um, I said, man, that, that's just a very simple concept, but how true is it? Uh, just respect the rep. If we, if we did everything in block training, but respected and had focus and intent on every rep, respected every rep. We would acquire skills, not as a, not as a, not at a very high rate of speed, but with focus and intent on a rep, you're going to acquire skills that can help you play. Okay. So the, the, so now you couple that with how we're doing our training a little bit differently in all the areas. Now you got something there. So then the concept of is, well, well, how can we make players, you know, respect the rep, mm -hmm. the drill itself, Okay, whatever you 
give your players, they will match the drill with their with energy and focus, depending upon the the complexity or challenge of the drill. Sure. So the drill itself is going to make them and force them to respect every rep. Now, if, if that's, you know, and then how can you go beyond that is, you know, obviously you add challenge, you throw consequences in there, you make it competitive, you know, use of constraints. There's a million ways now to make them respect the rep. Ultimately, the more reps respected in a training day, the more skill that's been acquired to help you win. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the simple concept of respect the rep is a great way to prime your players, even just before you, you know, whatever you're finished talking about, you know, I use it all the time. It's a simple question. Did you respect the rep or finish whatever it is you're priming them with to respect the rep as you go and break off of your work? It, it became a mantra that stuck. And then I, I actually took it uh, and I started to look at it from a coach's perspective. All right. How well are, how good are we at respecting every rep? Meaning are we watching every rep intently with focus and intent, which is going to allow us to then be better coaches and teachers and notice more and learn more about what we're seeing. How do we respect every, how do we get better at respecting the rep as coaches and teachers by respecting the prep? Mm -hmm. All right. So if we're prepared to see and teach, we're better teachers. So it comes back to respect the prep. When we talk about respect of prep, you're priming yourself, number one, for what it is that you want to get accomplished. And then the second thing is, is how you upload what we're doing to the players. You're priming them to what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And what's the expectation? It's really simple. And so once that priming thing comes into respect the rep, respect the prep, you go out there, you know, good things are going to happen because everyone's prepared for this session. And like I said, if the training, if we're prepared and they're respecting reps, all right, and we're, we're coming together as a group at the end of this thing to make sense of all of it, what we've learned, that's a really good session of training, right? And, and that is ultimately where that story, uh, where that, that mantra evolved from was a, it came over a simple, you know, a simple uh, competition uh, which required very little planning. However, with a, with something on the line, the focus and intent was very intense. And, you know, it, these guys could be playing for a Gatorade. Uh, I've done this too. It could be a simple game of wipeout on the defensive side of the ball at shortstop, like that game we just played. And then sitting in a cooler of ice is one single solo Gatorade. <laughs> and you'd have thought they won the seventh game of the world series and we were presenting a ring sure. in front of the room, you know? And so, uh, just a, a, a simple form of competition is another great way of getting guys to, to respect the rep. And as a, that's a very simple, low hanging fruit way of priming your players. Um, and then when you think of that, you know, are we, how are we forcing our players to respect, you know, every rep? And it starts with what, you know, what environment are we creating? What are the grills, which is a game-like drill? What are the grills we're creating? Are we blending our fundamentals? Are they, are they training in the jungle enough to perform in the jungle? Are we training in the zoo and then hoping we perform in the jungle? And, and so that, that, you know, that, that when, we, when we're looking at things that way, I think it, it makes us want to prepare better. Uh, you just want your guys to, you got, you want, you want to help you guys you know, see what dot they're at and then get to the next dot. Ultimately you're trying to move them forward. 
collectively and individually. I love that. And I think that, you know, you, you are uh, just hitting the nail on the head as far as training and uh, random practice goes. And I know there are some listeners who have some youth players. I'm sure there are some guys that are in pro ball and everywhere in between. And so I know that there's a question that always comes up, which is, is block practice relevant? And for me, I say it depends just like anything else. But what, what is your, <laughs> yeah, what is your opinion on that? Is it relevant and what percentage of training should we use? And let, let's just go, you know, from the amateur, even, even up to the pro ball level. And what would you say that uh, would be the percentage of block practice that we need versus random practice that we need? So this is such a great topic um, for, for every single level. All right. And we have a two-year-old grand baby, Abigail, and I recently got her a tee and a wiffle bat. And I can tell you that she does not have the movement pattern down to hit that ball off the tee yet. But once she gets that, I'm going to start moving that ball around as best I can. Uh, and once she gets any form of a pattern down, we want to move her and, and, and get her and get her to try and solve some other problems. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I say the sooner, the better. Now, the value of block practice. There is, there is value in a couple of different ways. Is there a new move I need this player to make? Is there a new movement pattern I need to train that this guy needs in order to perform? All right. Value. Is there, all right, the next piece of the value is this. Uh, and Andy Bass, my, one of my mentors, talks to me about this all the time. When you're playing a guitar, you know, the, the value of black practice, like a guy who's a very good guitar player and he, he does a lot of, uh, tuning his guitar, doing, strumming some different notes. He's tuning it, getting things together. He calls that the, uh, the warm up of the a brain of the mind and body connection, right? So the block practice will create um, the mind body connection. Now that we have that though, let, let's get off of that quickly and let's get into our problem solving. Okay. So and it could be as simple as this. You've got a young player. You, you want to teach him a new move, um, a knee tuck as opposed to a leg lift on the offensive side. Okay. Let, let's, let's get him to feel the move. You got him set up on a tee. He can, he can feel the move and watch the barrel hit the thing. Once he gets that, then I'm not even going to allow him to, to make contact with that ball in the same area twice. I'll move the tee every swing. So at least it's a different, it's a little different problem. All right. So even within block training, if you can just bring a little variability to it, you're, you're moving them ahead at a little quicker pace than it would be to just go, okay, 21 divided by three, 21 divided by three, 21 divided by three. Here we go. Let's start moving the problem around. Sure. Let's give them a little different math problem. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that concept is from, from, my grandbabies, uh, you know, where, where she's learning, how, where she's learning all the way to the big leagues. There, there is some value to a block blend, but for me, the higher you go, the lower the blend of block and the more there is to the challenge variability and randomness, because we have, we have a lot of things that we need to prepare for, uh, at seven o'clock that we need to see. And experience. So, uh, I am a fan of blending it. I've and, and then the art piece. You say how much? Mm-hmm. Well, who's in front of you? 
what do they need? Where are they at? All right. And then I will, and me personally, and, and this is just, this is me. I am, I, I always are on the side of the nudge forward rather than the pullback uh, because it's amazing how adaptable and fast people learn. I mean, it's, you know, and I look at, you know, Brad Fisher, our catching guy, right? So I ask him, I say, hey, Fish, you know, hey, I bet if you use this constraint and this velocity with extreme velocity, uh, that they will be able to handle it within a minute's time. And it is absolutely amazing how quickly the mind and the body connect and speed up and learn when you force them to. And within a minute, these guys were handling in just an unreasonable velocity, which ultimately don't we want to slow the game down for our players, either speed of the game and or speed of thinking. So unbelievable amount of value, um, but it it, it is a blend. I am there's, if you look at the studies done on block and random training, there is a small sample size to this, this, this one study that was done on the, on the offensive side of the ball over a six week period with three control groups. I think the random group outperformed the, the block group probably by 40 something percent in terms of retention, uh, skill acquisition and transfer. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even close. Now, even if those numbers are skewed, it's still, there's still so much separation that it's, you know, it makes you look at things and go, wow, okay. I need to be incorporating more of this random stuff than, than the block. Is there value to block? Yep. But for me, let's be top heavy in, in jungle random versus and training to the tree versus zoo, slow it down and worried about, you know, players getting confidence crushed. Uh, they, they aren't, they're not going to get their confidence crushed. And then, you know, that's us having a feel for them again. So, but that, that's, those are some of my thoughts on the whole random block thing. And I think that's such an important topic. And I think if you want to create a margin for your, for your players, um, and, and, and boy, they will acquire skills quickly, but when you allow it to happen, um, it's pretty remarkable to watch. Sure. No, absolutely. And, you know, let's say, um, trying to think of the month. So about April. Uh, we were struggling a little bit with breaking balls, and it seemed like you know we we could hit them well in the cage, we could hit them well on the machine, and so my head coach and I were just we're we're trying to figure out you know why we were struggling so much with uh, hitting them in games, and so we you know got down and we brainstormed, and I think usual practice you've got your your fastball machine with some velocity, and then you've got your curveball machine, so you can understand the trajectory of it and where to you know how to hit it. And so we just, we went to mixed BP of where we, you know, we, we had done it a little bit before, but instead of doing just the curveball machine to where they knew it was coming, uh, now we were mixing in uh, breaking balls to where they actually had to make adjustments to it. And I think a lot of the time, uh, that, or that was just at least one moment in time in the last couple of months that I really remember going, okay, this is kind of block practice with the curveball because they know what's coming consistently every time and they can hit it when they know it's coming. But how do they make that decision and how do they, how do they adjust their body and, uh, and their swing to be on time with the differential pitch? And I think that was mm-hmm. where we started to hit it a lot better. 
And I think that that's just, you know, one of the, you gave many examples, but I know just personally, that was something that stood out in the last couple of months that we we went, okay, now let's move on from this curveball machine to where they see it. And I think that's maybe a little bit of tradition to where, okay, we want to see curveball and it's really hard to, you know, to have pitchers throw live in season to us in the cages every day. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that was something that, that we've done lately that, that really helped our hitters and. I think it it heightened awareness and you could definitely see some frustration going on because they're like, okay, I can hit this curveball every time. And some of them couldn't. So some of them hadn't progressed from that. And that was a different conversation. And I think the players will ultimately teach us what they need or they'll tell us what they need in different ways if we're paying attention. But I also love that you Mm -hmm. talked about integrating competition into practices. And, And again, some of the guys that you work with are the best in the world. And you're talking about them basically fighting over one Gatorade to where all they would have to do is go to the store and pay $2 for, right? And I right, love that, right. but, it, but it heightens awareness. It gets your brain going. It keeps gets you to think. And we always talk about how, you know, well, not we, but the the word on the street is players aren't competitive these days, right? I mean, we hear that so much, but I tend to think the opposite. I think they're as competitive as they've ever been and you giving the example of the Gatorade really truly shows that. And I think that it's true all the way up. And so anytime we can integrate competition into practice, I'm all in. And you hinted earlier that you've got some different ways to do so, but I would, I would love to hear more about that. So first of all, back to your original thing that you were talking about, how to get you guys hit that hang a breaking ball better. All right. You're sure. So, yeah. there, you know, so it, the, the old 21 divided by three set up the, curveball machine and and have it roll into their barrel mm-hmm. okay so after they barrel the first one they've already solved the problem and it's only one problem and they haven't really had to solve anything about making a decision on it because you're rolling it into their barrel mm-hmm. so now it becomes swing practice and they're timed up to hit this hanging breaking ball uh learning stopped so now we say okay how do we get our guys to get hit in that break ball better? And the, so there's some simple things. So you either do two pitch mix with your, with your BP throwers. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if you have a good break ball. It doesn't matter if you have like get up on them, get at a distance where the reaction time is. Okay. Number one, we got to hit off the fastball to be able to adjust to hit the hanger. Sure. That's the game. That's the game from where you're at to the big leagues. And you talk about Derek Jeter. Uh, what, were, what were you thinking up there? Were you sitting on pitches? I was, I was ready to hit the fastball and I hit the hanger. That fastball was in my area. I'm right. Smoke it. And I can hit that. I can just hit the hanger or spit on it. And so how do you create uh, a hit off the fastball by time and solution space, and then adjust and hit off a hanger? Well, you have to practice it. How do you train that? The first thing, as I told you is fastball, break ball mix, right? They have to say no. They have to say yes to the fastball, say no to the breaking ball that you don't hit. Right. Or you start, you say, okay, I want you guys to hit off the fastball, take the breaking ball. The progression is, okay, I have to focus and recognize the pitch to hit, okay. hit it. And, sp- and as soon as I see spin, I take it. Mm-hmm. And then you progress to, okay, we're hitting off the fastball, but if I hang it and you like it, go ahead and bang it. Mm-hmm. Now that's a big jump. Sure. Okay. But the more you train it, and this is the game at the highest level, then the better off they're going to be. And how you do that, I tell you this the first the second way is we've done this creatively. If you have two, um, if even if you have the old Casey machines, uh, where 
you know, you, you have them side by side, one set up with a curveball, and the other one set up with a heater, uh, both, both over the plate. And so as you, as the player gets ready and into his load, you're either funneling the ball into the fastball or the curveball mm-hmm. where they have to recognize, make a decision and bang it, whatever the thing is. And then, so if you go, okay, and then you want to add complexity to the drill. All right. Number one on, you know, they're really getting the skill of hitting off the heater and hitting the hanger. Then you start throwing complexity into it and say, nobody out runner on second, nobody out one, one out runner on third and feel back. So you have to make, again, goes back to what's my role, get a pitch to do with, make a decision on it. So you, you think back at what am, what am I doing here in this simple thing? One, the skill of to be able to hit off the fastball, which you have to do. And then to be able to the skill of hit the hanger. Hitting off fastball, but I have the ability to recognize and hit the hanger. So it's training that skill and then progressing it with complexity and applying it into the game, you know, jungle, you know, scenario. So, but you're on it. I, I love that. And um, so let's talk about how you can, you take that same thing and you create a competition out of it, mm-hmm. right? So you say, okay, today's competition, uh, we are doing, it's a situational hitting game. Uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to go, here are the situations, you know, and again, just throwing stuff out there. Okay. You have runner on first, nobody out. It's a hit and run runner on second. Uh, it is a move the runner scenario, uh, runner on third, less than two outs. You've got nobody on nobody out. You've got, you throw out different offense, you know, whatever situational hitting situation you want, you put it in there. Okay. And then you track it. Okay. You get a point for this. You get a point for this. You get minus one for this. You get a minus one for that. Everything's tracked and scored. All right. So offensively, very easy to create these simple competitions, but at the same time, you've got to perform a situational move. You've got to make a good decision. You've got to do it under, under stress. Um, and, 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 and believe it when you've got all your peers gathered around a turtle staring you down and you've got problems coming at you from the mound a lot of pressure you gotta solve that now you're training focus now you're training decision making uh now you're training you know their skill in the fire mm-hmm. there's so much good stuff going on right there it's not even funny and it's very uncomfortable so and we like to say hey no pressure no diamonds and if you're going to train you know without the use of pressure pressure is our friend pressure helps us helps us grow so if you're going to train without that, then you're really, you're missing, you're missing a huge component, huge fan of pressure. And I think educating your fit, your, your players on how pressure helps us grow is a huge thing. Whereas in, instead of man pressure, oh, something that you, you know, makes you get tight instead of, instead of pressure is a privilege where let's go, man, I know mm-hmm. this is feeding me. This is pressures like vitamins to my game. Let's go. And you know, you see guys that, okay, he doesn't perform well in pressure. I guarantee you pressure performing in the fire and under pressure. It's just, it's another muscle to, to build, you know, his baseline may be very low, but you can move that needle very quickly and guys that can perform in the pressure and you train them more in the pressure, you train in rock stars. Mm-hmm. So either way you're, you're building swings, deliveries, decision-making and the fire is like competitive calluses are hard to beat. And if you know, if you're building those things, that's good training. So other competitions, you know, I told you, I explained, they don't have to be super complex. They can be performing a skill and, and then just simply tracking it, whether it's fielding and throwing accurately in the fire, 
a hitting and a simple situational hitting thing in the fire. How about this one for pitchers? You've got, you know, you want to throw bullpens with focus and intent. Uh, you say, uh, okay, you guys, uh, you've, you're, you're, you're warm, right? Okay. Let's play a game of horse, like mm-hmm. in basketball. And the first guy says fastball down and away. He executes it. Guy in the other mound, fastball down and away. Doesn't execute it. That's a letter. So as you go through this bullpen, right? Then you go, okay, this one's out of the stretch with a runner on second base. And then, and you, you can describe your shot to the, to the guy you're competing against. And then boom, back and forth. That is a, it's a, it's slow. It's competitive. Um, it's amazing that the focus intent goes through the roof. And then sometimes the guys you talked about who don't compete as well in the fire, sometimes they, it, it takes that training to get them to understand their emotions, to get them to understand how they, they can just, they just have to go pitch as opposed to pitch and worry about consequences. There's so many simple things, that simple game. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we take the, uh, all right, today we're, our real focus antenna is on the, the quality of our fastball strikes. So we're going to work with strings and we're going to work with you know, plastic guys all around the box. And we're going to keep track of this pen and we're going to, and you know, we're going to post these. And every time I throw, we throw pens this week, we're going to post a number of quality uh, stri- or strikes, quality strikes, boom, boom, boom. We grade out everything. We post it. There's nothing like things posted on a wall and competition in a clubhouse to get guys focused in, in on their, uh, on their training, regardless, it could be the simplest of things. And then what else are you doing? You're, you're really, you're making the game, you're boiling it down to a very simple thing. You know, our, our hitting guys track competitions mm-hmm. on the field and they post them, but then they also track competitions within the competitions. Corey DeHaan, one of our hitting guys are really good at this. Like we're having a situational hitting competition. He tracks that. But he also tracks uh, exit velocities, 90 plus, 95 plus, 100 plus. Well, what does it require in order to have a high exit velocity? You got to barrel the ball. What do you got to do to barrel the ball? You got to be focused on every pitch. You make good decisions because you're as good as the pitch you swing at. Sure. So he, he does things that refocus the hitter, not on the hit, but drilling them down on the process. So competition is one thing. And then scoring and posting things, number one, it's competitive. And number two, you're refocusing this guy to the process as opposed to hanging their lives on a, on a hit, you know, now I want to hang it on getting a good pitch to hit and barreling it. So, and doing it in the fire. Definitely. Competitions, definitely. you can't, can't do it enough. It's fun. They love it. The skill acquisitions through the roof. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is one of the, the best tools. And then obviously competition is a great creator of stress, the simplest of things. And guys, you should see, I mean, we, we also, we, we place a huge premium on players learning and improving. And so one of the things that we've done uh, in our last two extended camps uh, is have the managers um, recognize the learner of the week who has learned and improved more this week than any other player in the room and then to honor that. And so skill acquisition and learning becomes a badge of honor. Um, we, we recognize that and we give them a, a pirate coin, which is, you know, it's a very nice thing. Mm-hmm. Not everyone gets them and, you know, it just creates more focus and tent competition during the work days you now. And, uh, you know, 
games are yeah that's a whole nother story it's a whole nother story that's a whole nother learning laboratory the game itself but absolutely in the tra- in terms of training and competition and you know again I, the way i look at skills and you know i look at it in two two ways i look at it do we have certain ball handling skills throwing skills and then can we play chess not checkers can we mm-hmm. play chess have all this information come into us, make good decisions, and then perform that skill. So, you, you know, the more we, you know, raise the level of skill, but do so with decision-making involved, you just, you're creating a really good chess player. And ultimately, baseball players have to be good problem solvers, best problem solvers, progress in the game, problem solvers that are very competitive, play a long time. So that is, that is in a nutshell, you know, what I'm looking for in a player is, Hey, can I make him a really good adaptable problem solver? That's super competitive that I don't even want to play against. I got a winner. And and ultimately that's what we're training. I love that. And and I love that we're taking training and making it fun, making it competitive. And like you mentioned, the skill acquisition with that is just going to make them that much better. And I think that we, as coaches, we need to strive to do that as often as we can because in the end, if we're all about player development, that's it's just going to help our players get better and help us win games in the long run. But I've got some lightning-style questions before you go, and I know that, that we've been talking for a while, and I could literally do this all day because it's been so much fun, and I've, I'm learning a ton as we speak. But here's a couple of them, and one of them is we, we're talking a lot about creativity, but what's something creative that you've tried lately? So we've got some, we've got some different stuff, uh, going on. I, I tell you that Kyron Madison, one of our more, uh, creative, uh, on-field managers in terms of training, he threw together some stuff that, that was really interesting. And I hope I'd love to see this outside of pirate city. You know, when we talk about pop-up priorities and, and communication and spatial awareness and, uh, how, how can we be creative in training, you know, the skill and then the skill of knowing who's around us and catching a ball in a very challenging environment. So he takes uh, a huge, a, a three wheeled hack attack and he goes behind the center field batter's eye and he sets up an infield, a, a, a shell of infield in the outfield and he'll fire off a ball from behind the batter's eye. So number one, the player doesn't know where this ball is coming from. Number two, how good is his focus right now? Really good. And so number three, when that ball comes out, okay, and it's, you know, we usually fire them up at a really competitive and challenging height. They have to find the ball, communicate, be aware of the surroundings, catch the ball. So simple enough. So how do you add complexity, you know, to this? Well, you fire up one ball, then another ball, not long after. So when you fire up the one ball and they see where that ball is and that ball has been called for and owned. And then my next thing is, where's the next one coming? So my height and focus is unbelievable. Uh, well, hell, that ball's already on its way. All right, who's got it? So guys are, the guy, sometimes the ball is fired to a spot where the guy doesn't even know. So what are his teammates doing? They're communicating to him, ball, ball, ball with a point. Awesome. And so now it becomes a team exercise in communication and focus. Now we're working on the skill. Now we're worried the complexity of it is, is very, very heightened because it's challenging like crazy. And then, but yet you should see the fun they're having. These guys are, they're having so much fun. It's unbelievable. So how do we add to this? So then we throw an outfield shell behind them. And now they're like, 
No, behind the infield. So now we go ball up in the air, another ball up in the air, another ball up in the air, third ball goes up. So now you've got, you've got guys really helping each other, communicating, and then actually catching a really a tough, difficult ball at a machine. So that, that to me, I don't know if, if we, if we watched a video of this and I did this in spring training and I, I honored, uh, Kyron with the most creative drill of the week with this in our staff meeting, I said, and I think I counted like six or seven different fundamentals that were worked on during one rep. Hmm, that's awesome. Um, and, and it was, uh, it was very cool and very creative and obviously, you know, it, it inspires the room to do some similar things. Sure. Uh, and that was, that was one way to, to, to create some different things. And then off of that, you can actually flip-flop that. He's done it from home plate, and he, and he puts a, a tarp, an ice cream with a tarp in front of the machine. And so he's got outfielders out there. He's firing balls over this ice cream, but they don't know. And so they have to help each other find the ball, go get it, communicate, and secure the ball. So that's great. Th- that's just one, one, and one example of how creativity can create unbelievable awareness and skill as opposed to, all right, let's work on pop-up priorities today. Well, I know this. To a man, I have every single player in my organization. Hey, I want you to explain the pop-up priorities to me. I guarantee you they will accurately explain it to me. It's not that they don't know pop-up priorities. It's their skill level and confidence that ultimately will, and communication, mm-hmm. skill level, confidence, and communication that will ultimately lead to balls either falling in or not being caught. And so this drill creates a lot of that stuff to a point where now you go into a game where it's like now guys are they have the confidence to call for the ball early and own it and balls are secured. So you're creating a skill level and a confidence that plays in a complex scenario, which is the game. So that's, that's that's one of the things that, you know, and that's just one example and machines, you know, I don't know. Everyone doesn't have access to machines and, and ice screens, but you know, there's so many ways and girl, I grew up in the Northeast, never saw an L screen till college. So there's a lot of different creative ways we can, um, you know, we can come up with to, to help guys get better as opposed to, to the traditional thing. And back to your point of truth over tradition, just trying to search for the truth, man. You know, I, I'm, I'm still wrong, but I'm a lot less wrong than I used to be. And I, I'm just yeah. going to keep searching for the truth, you know, and then, you know, and tapping into our coaches as you get these guys to think differently. It's amazing how they then turn around and take things, concepts and creatively challenge you and come up with great ideas like like Kyron did there. I like that a lot, and uh, I think I speak for most of the social media world that I say, hey, you should post those on Twitter, but uh, we may or may not get that in the future. I don't know, but that would be really cool because I'm always looking for creative ways to be able to put those into practice, and I love that that you have a creative drill of the week, and I think I think that's really, really cool. And it's something that's simple, but uh, but it's like, oh, that's really, really good. If you want something, you should measure it, and that's what you guys are doing. Uh, so next question. What's something that you've learned lately that's gotten you really excited? Well, this, this is something that came to me, and, and this is off, off uh, script a little bit. But I'm, I was, uh, this is an aha coaching leadership teaching moment for me. I realized the, that the, the idea of ownership for a player in his game is, is so huge, right? The collaboration ownership piece of teaching a player, right? So if he feels that he is ultimately responsible and owns his development and his game, you got a good, dangerous winning player on your hands. It's his game. He's a thinking, 
you know, nasty, competitive problem solver. That is like, he is, he's a guy he's, he's become his own coach in many, many ways. Right. So I took that and I, and, and, and this, this, uh, this extended as I, I bounced back between Pittsburgh extended and, and, uh, the Dominican Republic. And one of the things I realized with, with coaches and coaching coaches is the more I trust, the more they own, the more they own, more creative, they get more creative. They get better off. Our players are going to be. And so the, the concept, which I understand it intellectually, I've read all about it, but I just, I just, this has been a coaching aha moment, teaching of coaches moment where trust and ownership is not only a huge thing for players, but the coaches that you coach ultimately think back at coaches that have poured into me and then in turn have given it, they, they turn the keys to the car over to me. And when I crashed, they were there to help me make sense of it as opposed to telling them how I, you know, they never told me, Hey man. You know, this is the car and this is how I want you to drive this car. Oh, I am, hey, here's the car. I trust you. Go do what you want with it. Take care of it. Uh, and, and, and I did that. And I think back at and the most impactful moments were when I crashed the car and, and I had my mentors there to help me make sense of it. Mm-hmm. So that concept of trust, that trust and ownership, you know, it just, it doesn't just apply to the player, but it just applies to those you lead and the, and the coaches that you coach. So it's a huge concept. I, I, I want to write about it. It's very, very, it's personal. And and I'm glad that, you know, and I'm glad I've gotten some good, you know, positive feedback from my coaches on that. For sure. For sure. All right. Next question. And I, this is something that I just started a, (laughs) a few weeks ago that, but I really like the responses because we're all somewhat biased to some of our things that we believe. So what is something that you believe that other coaches may disagree with you about? I think the speed at which we do things and progressions that we train at, um, the pushback I get, I think I alluded to it earlier. Coaches are always worried about what their feel looks like and how messy it looks and guys making lots of mistakes. Whereas that excites me. It scares many. I think as a young coach and manager back 20 years ago, especially when I had my, my bosses and stuff around, I liked to see a clean field. I thought that was a reflection of good coaching and teaching when the reality of it was, it was a reality of it was, it was a clean field as a result of lack of challenge or, uh, you know, just not very good training. Uh, and then they, they had to relearn the things that I was, we were doing on the field and they needed more. So I, I think that evolution where I'm at, I have to, I have to, I, I hear it all the time, you know, Hey man, I, I love what you're doing. Uh, but don't you think they need to see, we need to slow it down. And the, and the reality of it is 90% of the time we don't, we don't need that. We need to speed things up. And now I think those guys have value, uh, to allow me to think more deeply about what I'm doing and pump the brakes sometimes. Mm -hmm. But usually the pushback I get is from that. And I think some of that too is look, once you understand what learning looks like, you have a different, whole different lens of what your field, uh, you know, looks like and what, what they need. You, you, you see what learning looks like and you you, you can adjust your training to that. But messy is beautiful at mm-hmm. times, man. And, and you know, they're, they're getting it. And I always tell our coaches, man, Hey, once you see that field get clean, add, add in, add in, man, they need more. Oh, that's really, really good. Another one, if we came and I, I think that I may could be able to answer this question because you've given such a great descriptive analysis of what training looks like. 
But if we, and this may be a little bit broad, but if we came to one of your training sessions, what would be three things that would stand out or, or three things that we well, would notice? I think, I think it, if, 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 uh, you'd notice the field would be probably, uh, messy at times, uh, first thing, and we've alluded to that several times, cause there's some going to be some learning and challenge going on in this field. If, if there are times when the field could be very quiet because players go internal as they're trying to figure things out sometimes. And, you know, you're not going to hear a lot of rah-rah stuff when they're solving problems. And so, you know, someone that doesn't understand learning might say, Hey man, kind of a dead practice, huh? And you go, eh, I think they're just trying to figure some stuff out right now. You know, there's not a lot of grab butt going on and, and talking and all that kind of stuff. They're trying to figure stuff out. So it could be messy, could be quiet, uh, could be emotional. Uh, a lot of the training that we do evokes frustration and emotion. So you'll see some guys getting ticked off, maybe um, other guys overjoyed, maybe because they figure something out, but there's going to be some emotions too. So I think you're going to see a, a variety of things. Those three jump out at me initially when I talk about, you know, what do, what do your on-field training things look like? And on a typical day, you could see any number of those three things. No, that's fantastic. Well, last one, and uh, you've talked a lot about skill acquisition and a lot about your different experiences, but what are some of your favorite books or resources that have shaped your coaching career? You know, so that's a, that's a loaded question. I think in a lot of the books, you know, as you kind of, you, you, you grab them and you read them and it really is for where you're at at that time. But a couple, couple that I read early uh, kind of got me going in terms of training. I, obviously, Daniel Coyle is a guy, and his books, Talent Code and the Little Book of Talent, are two good little rereads you can have in your in your briefcase for just touching on really some very cool ideas that can can make you think of some creative training techniques. Uh, I think that the Goldmine Effect. Um, this guy Rasmus Ankerson wrote this book. It's about talent hotbeds and some of the commonalities uh, that he found in studying that. A book called Bounce, very interesting on you know building myelin and how that all and skill acquisition. It's it's very interesting. It's a very simple name called Bounce. The Power of Habit is another good one. A science of how we create you know movements and habits and those kind of things. And a little more deeper on the brain. I think I would encourage you know, baseball coaches to, I, I try to make it a, a, a habit not to read anything baseball. You know, I'll read anything from history to motor learning to articles, but I truly believe in cross-pollination. And the more I read outside of baseball and when I come back to it, it makes me have a different lens and really helps me be creative. Um, it makes me think of things in a way different way. So uh, those are, those are a couple couple to start with. And I think, you know, and that's a lot, you know, and that's the, there's, there's a lot, you know, to unpack there in those, just those books, you know, I've, I've evolved to read some different things along the way, but you know, if you want to get into the mental side, you know, Dorfman and his men, mental game, the men, coach in the mental game is a very good book as well. But the more you read and watch outside of baseball, I'm going to encourage you to, again, I, I just believe that you can really expand your mind. Um, you can really expand your thoughts uh, by doing that. Absolutely. Well, Dave, I appreciate your time today. And I know that there's going to be a lot of content to unpack as well. And is there anywhere online that our listeners can get in touch with you in case they have any questions about anything that you've talked about today? 
Uh, yeah, so I, I have a Twitter account, and I'm actually looking at <laughs> looking up the name of it. Uh, it's at David Turgeon 45. There's a little uh, picture of uh, my respect the rep T-shirt, uh, and that is that you can uh, direct message me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can exchange uh, cell phone, email through that if you like. Um, I'm always into ongoing conversations about anything and all things learning and uh, life, whatever, uh, and uh, you know have have some interesting talks. So that's that's the best way is it, it, there and. Uh, that's usually how people initially get in touch with me is this the DM me on, uh, on Twitter. I've, I've got some different things out there on Twitter, but, uh, obviously during the season, it, it slows down, uh, off season. I'll probably post a few more different things, but that's what, uh, that's what I got. Well, fantastic. Well, I can't say enough how thankful I am to have had you on the mic and for you to share so much of what you are currently doing, what you've done in the past and what you felt like has really benefited you and your players. But is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? Keep learning. Um, and, you know, obviously the more you're learning, uh, the more your players are learning. Uh, you can't give away what you don't have. Uh, I think having that white belt mentality, which is a beginning learning mindset with a black belt skill set, is, is ultimately what we're looking for in a coach or a teacher. As you go on your learning uh, and keep growing, you're going to just know that you're bringing your players and those you leave with you. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.